Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. The FT. Royal Mail shares start trading this week after unprecedented public interest. Have the changes to the way financial products are sold made any difference to the customer experience? And why many ethical funds are not quite what they seem. I'm Jonathan Ely and I'll be giving you all the money news this week in downloadable form with the help of my FT colleague David Oakley. Hello. Katie Morley of Investors Chronicle. Hello. And Gavin Oldham, Chief Executive of the Share Centre. Hello. Let's start with the flotation of Royal Mail. If someone had told me four weeks ago that the public offer for shares in this 500-year-old business would be seven times subscribed, I would have said they were off their rocker. Royal Mail looked like a company facing a declining letters market while fighting it out in a growing but tough parcels market and with a recalcitrant and strike-prone workforce. But investors don't see it that way. They have flocked to the offer, which seems to have captured the public imagination in a similar way to the Tel-Sid privatisations of the 1980s. Indeed, with over 700,000 applications from members of the public, the Royal Mail offer is not far short of the BT share offer in 1984. If all of those investors got the minimum £750 investment, then Joe Public will have invested half a billion pounds in Royal Mail. And that supposedly recalcitrant workforce? Well, just over 300 of them have refused the free shares they were offered, out of over 150,000. I'm joined now by Gavin Oldham, Chief Executive of the Share Centre. Gavin, I hope you don't mind me telling listeners that you were around for the first wave of privatisations in the 1980s. How does this compare to those? No, indeed, I was just setting up Barclay Share at the time, uh, and I recall those uh, early privatisations very well. They had a lot of government advertising um, and, uh, uh, you know, really, it's in a sense the uh, the preparation for the issue was much deeper and longer with the uh, Royal Mail. But actually, the really impressive thing is, is the way that uh, this issue has built as we move towards the close of the application period. I think that has uh, a number of reasons behind it. Um, Part of it is obviously media comment. But also, we have to remember, this is the first really true internet-based new issue application from a government. You know, we've seen some difference in the characteristics of the way people apply. For example, with the old 1980s, 1990s privatisations, you would apply using a paper-based application form and a cheque. And you'd get it in the post a few days beforehand to make sure it actually got there in time. Nowadays, people go online and very much they've left that until the last day. And we saw tremendous volumes coming through on the last day itself. 
So I think that's a big difference there. And I think one of the other really big differences has been the extent of intermediary involvement with it, because the early privatisation issues went just through registrars, uh, you know, the main sort of issuing house, and uh, people ended up with share certificates. Nowadays, there's far more people investing in share accounts in an ISIS and actually having a much more broadly based approach to investment. And I think we've seen their involvement coming through the intermediaries uh, in a much uh, larger way. And that will lead to a much more mature approach to the investment itself. Does that not mean, though, that um, the people who are buying Royal Mail shares are overwhelmingly going to be um, people who already invest in shares and already own shares, whereas in the 1980s the objective of privatisations was to broaden share ownership and introduce people to it for the first time? Well, I think that it it has fired the imagination here because with Royal Mail you have a brand which is visible on the street day by day, very, very familiar to everyone in their homes. And uh, so really I think it has caught the imagination and and there have been many, many new people uh, to investing coming forward and actually taking an interest in this. I'm hugely encouraged also by the fact that out of 150,000 uh, Royal Mail employees, only 368, I think, actually uh, decided to opt out of it. And so, you know, I think it's really encouraging to see this new spirit of share ownership come through. And I hope it's something that we can really build on from here. There's lots of talk of the shares zooming straight to a premium when trading starts on uh, Friday morning. And I'm starting to hear the words stagging for the first time in many years. Should investors sell these shares straight away? What are Royal Mail's longer term prospects like? Well, I think every issue which is well planned would expect to open at a premium to its offer price. I think it would be regarded as a failure of an issue if it didn't open at a premium. So you must expect some premium. And you know, in the grey market, uh, you know, they're talking about just over four pounds. That sounds about the sort of level which um, you know uh, issues should be planned at from that point of view. I think uh, there has been talk about where the value may lead to, and uh, and in fact there are signs that it could be a very good investment. Certainly, you know, there's going to be a, a significant scale back, quite obviously, both from the uh, uh, personal investors who applied for higher amounts, because the main focus will be on those who applied for relatively smaller amounts of shares, uh, and also from institutions as well. And we have to remember that if the if the stock does become eligible to go into the FTSE 100 index, then there will be a need for institutions to make sure that they do uh, increase their weighting in the holding. So I think that, that the market is going to be well supported going forward. And I would have thought that this isn't a situation where uh, we're necessarily going to see large numbers of people sell out straight away and then, you know, some disappointment after that. Uh, I think it will actually uh, see a good entry to the market and it will be uh, a good investment going forward. Thank you very much, Gavin. That was Gavin Oldham, Chief Executive of the Share Centre. Still to come on the show, why many ethical funds are not quite all they seem. But first, let's take a look at the Retail Distribution Review. This is the mighty piece of rulemaking that the financial services industry has been talking about for years, but which the average investor finds about as interesting as watching paint dry. We're about halfway now between the first phase of RDR, which involved banning sales commission to financial advisors, and the second phase, which will ban commission to non-advised sales as well. The changes were intended to make financial services more professional, more transparent and better value. Advisors now have to pass tougher exams and they have to charge clients directly rather than offering supposedly free advice but taking payments from fund managers. 
Critics said it was just a load more bureaucracy and cost that would merely make investing more expensive and put many people off taking advice altogether. So who is right? I'm joined now by David Oakley, who is the FT's investment correspondent. David, let's start with this uh, idea of an advice gap. Before RDR started, there were dire warnings that many investors with small portfolios in particular would be too much trouble for advisors and that they would be orphaned. In fact, one study claimed that almost 43 million people could end up disenfranchised in this way. They would end up trying to do it themselves and make a mess of it, or they would simply not invest at all. Has that happened? And are regulators worried about the fact that it may happen? Um, I think we have to stress that RDR is is a positive development. Um, But there is a worry that transparency over fees means that more people will decide not to, to take advice. I think one of the main things someone should think about when considering whether to take a a financial advisor, would you pay for a plumber? Uh, Would you pay for a builder? Would you pay for a car mechanic? Um, If the answer is yes to those kind of questions, then then perhaps you should think about financial advice. And um, certainly the FCA, the regulator, is concerned. I understand that they are thinking of putting out new guidelines for investors, possibly this month, and to outline and make clear to people that there are risks and that you should be thinking about uh, the type of investments you buy depending on your circumstances and age. Perhaps a final point to make, though, is is that, that there are many savvy investors out there. There are many experienced investors out there who do know what they're doing. Uh, that's fine. If you've been uh, creating a SIP or or buying ISAs for years, then, then fine. That, that That's probably fair enough that you don't necessarily need advice. But for some people, it's very important to, to pay for what is perhaps one of the most important decisions you make in your life, which is saving for a pension or saving for your children's education. Yes, that's an important point to make, isn't it? Because many listeners will be thinking, well, you know, I've managed my own investments for years. Um, I, I know what I'm doing. I didn't invest in subprime debt. I didn't buy dot-com stocks. Um, I don't need protecting from my own stupidity. But what the regulator is is concerned about, uh, what you seem to be saying, is that um, there's a lot of people who have not managed their own um, investment affairs before who have been happy to delegate that job to an advisor and now find that they are not able to do so. Yeah, I think I think that's very true. And I think what we have to bear in mind is that, um, you know, perhaps more people are going to um, look at uh, making their own savings or investing themselves with auto-enrolment, with the move from defined benefit pension schemes to defined contribution schemes. More people are going to have to think about investing themselves, buying in stocks and shares themselves. So these people, if they're new to the game, perhaps it is wise to to get someone in who is considered an expert who can at least give you a bit of guidance. And I think one of the points made by one of the top fund managers I've spoken to recently is fees are really not that big a deal if you think about it. If you if you pay, say, 05 percentage points on, on for, a, for a financial advisor and your stocks and shares make big, big returns, that's a small amount. If you don't pay any fees and your stocks and shares crash, then that is a big deal. So perhaps if you're not, if you're not sure, uh, the, the, the cautious option would be to take advice. Another objective, of course, of RDR was that the cost of running funds, the cost paid by investors for running funds, would fall because the sales commissions that fund managers used to pay to advisors are now being removed and they'll be removed from non-advised sales next year as well. Is there much sign of that 
of those costs coming down already? And what about the way that advisors charge for their services now? Um, there's not a lot of clarity there. I think I think that the only area where there is clarity actually is is costs for um, asset management fees, uh, and asset management fees are coming down. Uh, Standard Life last month uh, introduced what they called discounted. Uh, charges or the so-called super clean share classes, which are offering lower fees, which mean asset managers' margins, profit margins are coming down. That's good for the customer uh, because they're paying less. It's not so good and necessary for the asset managers in a very competitive world. But uh, that, I think, is overall... A, a positive development um, from RDR on these regulations. Um, uh, uh, the, the further question and, and the final question, which we haven't resolved yet, is over the distributors, the Hargreaves, Lansdowns, these kind of organisations. Will they be cutting their fees in line with the asset management asset managers, in line with possibly the financial advisors or not? That's something we'll probably find out next month when... Hargreaves, the, the biggest platform, uh, announces its new fee structure. Uh, that will be a very interesting um, press conference and it'll be interesting to find out what Hargreaves are doing. And just finally, the UK's move to an outright ban on sales commissions from product providers to distributors is actually quite radical by international standards. Which other countries are, are sort of keeping an eye on the UK to see how this pans out? I think, I mean, the UK is basically the test pilot here, with the possible exception of, of the Dutch, who are actually possibly taking the Dutch are actually taking these reforms a little bit further than the UK in the sense that they are covering institutional as well as retail investors Um, however most countries are watching the UK particularly Germany France Italy Um, the Germans particularly are worried Baffin's already put out um, uh, some statements on this um, and there are concerns about how it will affect uh, the asset management industry there Uh, in Asia some of the more advanced countries there like Taiwan and Singapore are also watching these reforms and I think you know as I say if the UK does crash land over RDR then they can um, take some learn some lessons from it Uh, but I think overall other countries will follow the UK because clearly transparency lower fees you can't really argue against that. Indeed not. Thank you very much, David. And you can read lots more about the impact or not of RDR in this weekend's FT Money. We look particularly hard at this idea that DIY investors can be a danger to themselves. And if you can't get to a newsagent this weekend, you can read FT Money via the FT's tablet apps on Kindles and online at www.ft.com forward slash money. If you want to leave comments, perhaps you think DIY investors actually do a better job than fund managers, you can do so online or email us. The address is money at ft.com. On to our final item today, which also relates to funds. Next week is Ethical Investment Week, when a section of the funds industry will try to persuade you that you can support green energy, stop global warming and end the exploitation of workers, all while earning great investment returns. At the same time, another section will tell you that ethical investment products are a byword for high charges and mediocre performance, and that the whole thing is a dastardly marketing gimmick designed to prise open your checkbook by tugging at your heartstrings. One thing is certain, though. Ethical funds have changed substantially over the years. They used to be very much about what wasn't allowed. No weapons, no tobacco, no alcohol, no gambling, and so on. 
Now they're very much about companies which are heavily committed to corporate and social responsibility, and that has led to some rather odd inclusions. For instance, BP, responsible for one of the world's biggest oil disasters in 2010, is a constituent of several ethical funds. I'm joined now by Katie Morley, who writes about funds and personal finance for my old parish, The Investor's Chronicle. Katie, you've discovered something else rather eyebrow-raising about some ethical funds for sale in the UK. Can you tell us more about that? Yes. Uh, Well, it turns out that the vast majority of them, in fact, uh, around nine in ten of them, of the ones that uh, market themselves as ethical or socially responsible, would actually be banned from doing that in Belgium and France. How is that possible, that a fund can be described as one thing in one place but something else in another? I mean, I thought the the sort of catchily named USITS rules were supposed to apply across the EU and standardise all these things in in all member states. Yeah, well, USITS is something a bit different. I mean, it's an international standard that investments have to meet if they want to be sold anywhere in Europe. But here we're talking about an extra level of regulation and it relates directly to ethical funds. And the UK simply doesn't have anything like it here. Uh, Now, the crux of this is that uh, most of the ethical funds in the UK are not meeting a set of specific European transparency standards. Now, these were created in 2008 by the European Sustainable Investment Forum, which we call EUROSIF for short. Now, EUROSIF, it's a pan-European think tank, and it designed the code to give investors assurance that ethical funds are doing exactly what they say on the tin. So, for example, it will it makes them disclose 100% of their holdings. Now, Belgium and France think this code is so important that they've made it compulsory for all their ethical and social responsible funds. And ethical funds are not allowed to call themselves ethical if they don't comply with this code. But here in the UK, the IMA, which is our trade body for investments, has not accepted the code yet. And this means that ethical funds we buy here have absolutely no obligation at all to meet EUROSIF standards. Now, there have been several calls uh, for UK ethical funds to improve their transparency, as a lot of them don't do things like uh, like disclosing all of their holdings. Um, but not. it's worth noting also that not everybody thinks EUROSIF's approach is a good idea. I mean, I spoke to the chief executive of UXIF yesterday, which is the UK branch of uh, Eurosif, and he said that box ticking actually might stifle innovation. So there are some fears around that too. Okay, so who in this country decides what is and is not an ethical fund? Well, it's basically down to the marketing departments of these fund houses that offer the funds. Um, now, this ne- isn't necessarily a bad thing because there are some excellent fund houses out there and some really, really good ethical funds too. And I've been writing about some of those in the Investors Chronicle this week. But as an, eth- as an ethical investor, you really need to make sure that you do your own due diligence because fund houses, to a certain extent, can make their own rules. So you should take a really good look at the information of, that the fund manager is giving you on the fund. Look for things like, are they disclosing 100% of their holdings? And have they provided enough information on the strategy to make you feel confident? And I think if you don't see these things on the fact sheets and in the information, you need to really think long and hard about whether you want to give them your money. Okay. And of course, ethical investment means um, can mean very different things to, to 
to different people, which is maybe uh, an argument for not having these kind of rigid uh, rules around what can and cannot call itself an ethical fund. But um, can you give some sort of advice for what, you know, when people do look under the bonnet, what should they, what what are the sorts of things they should be looking for in particular? Uh, well, I guess it, it really depends on what you're looking for with an ethical fund. I mean, I think it's something like 99% of ethical investors uh have their entire portfolio invested in ethical in ethical products if they're going to do it. Um, so, I mean, some people will go for the more traditional negative screening approach where they, you know, want to make sure that there's no tobacco or alcohol or any of these sin stocks in the fund. And if you are one of those investors, you know, you need to be checking the strategy. You need to be asking the fund manager exactly what kind of things they are excluding. And that should be should be very clear on the marketing. However, you know, if you go to the holdings and they're not all disclosed, it is very difficult to be 100% sure that, that you know, that there could be a, a, a tiny bit of exposure in there. And it really depends how strict you want to be over these things. So, Thank you very much, Katie. We've got more on what is and is not an ethical fund, plus a look at the various solar power ventures that have come to the market recently, promising fat dividends in this weekend's FT Money. Other highlights in the latest issue, David Stevenson looks at a new exchange-traded fund that gives access to hedge fund strategies at passive fund prices. We've got the latest on help to buy as the first lenders launch their government-backed mortgage products. And we look at how the scandalous regulatory lapses that allowed Catalyst Investment Group, now in administration, to continue selling very risky products to unsuspecting investors for years on end. That's it for this week. But in the meantime, don't forget, you can read money articles online all week on our website, www.ft.com forward slash money, where you'll also find blog posts, readers' comments and a whole range of useful calculators and tools. But until next week, it's goodbye from me and it's goodbye from David, Katie and our special guest, Gavin Oldham. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellingcat.com.